1: from the time i was a kid i would steal my dad's camera and take pictures and so so photography was always on my mind i had a clear vision of what i wanted to do and i think through the dance and choreography that i did back in the day i was able to think about camera movement and bruce gowers was a you know brilliant is a brilliant director was a brilliant director who i would hang out with i would go to edit sessions with him afterwards i would study what he was his movement and choreography of the stage and the set and the cameras and the actors and the dancers and the you know staging of everything and because i was a choreographer i was given a shot on roundhouse to choreograph as well i was able to you know apply all of those things at the time and that was really my transition and sort of figuring out what was my path to directing Because I I knew that I would end up directing at some point.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited about the show today with an incredible producer, director, visionary, Ivan Dudinsky you're gonna really be blown away by this guy. Before I get started, I want to thank you guys so much for all your support. Truly appreciate it. I'll never stop saying it. You can reach me at Barry Katz at Twitter and Instagram, and please follow me and send me messages. I'll be glad to get back to you as soon as I can. And I really want to get going with this episode. I have never done an episode like this before, and this person really is a groundbreaking artist in every sense of the word so without further ado let me introduce him and i'll let you be the judge ivan dudinsky is an award-winning producer and director recognized for his vision in creating compelling tv and brand content the former star search winner an actor alongside christian bale and disney's newsies and nickelodeon's roundhouse is currently the co-creator of Songland for NBC and directing TV series including VH1's Martha and Snoop's Potluck Dinner Party, NBC's Hollywood Game Night, and Netflix's Next in Fashion. As a producer, director, and editor, he has earned some of the most prestigious awards in Hollywood, including Key Art, Cable Ace, Kid's Choice, Grammy, and a Peabody Award. His credits include projects with MTV, NBC, Universal, Fox, ABC, Spike, Telemundo, Sony Pictures, MGM, Univision, and CBS. Dudinsky is also the chief creative officer and founder of Deviance Media the creative production agency that develops and produces network television experimental programs and activations and digital channels from its new media studio in El Segundo. As a creative executive, Dudinsky partnered with longtime collaborator Sean Puffy Combs to conceive and launch Revolt TV, developed and launched the app and daily TV program Rise for AOL, and has consulted with some of the most prestigious brands in the world including Apple, Pepsi, Swatch, Beats, Cirque du Soleil, and Nike. On the personal side, Dudinsky is married to his wife, Audrey Morrissey, the Emmy Award-winning executive producer of The Voice. And on the business side recently, he helped compile and create and write an incredible new book featuring some of the greatest artists in the sneaker culture generation. The book, The Art of Sneakers, Volume 1, can be found wherever books are sold. It's a masterpiece. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, one of the most incredibly versatile people that I've ever met in the business, and a true visionary. Please welcome Ivan Dudinsky. Thanks, Barry. Did I get the name right? You did. Nailed it on the first try. All right, thank God.
1: It's, it's how it sounds. I mean, it's how it's spelled. Sounds how it's spelled.
0: All right. Dudinsky. I'm not even to tell you all the incarnations that I had in my mind, so I'm glad I made the cut. I have so many things to ask you, and the most fascinating thing for the audience about you is that you do almost everything. I always think to myself that old expression, good at everything, master of none. But it seems to me like you're extraordinary at everything, and you're the master of everything. Am I missing something?
1: Uh, I'm a deep dive enthusiast. So if I take something on, I go all out. So whether it's uh, the editing uh, video over the years or um, filming or photography or directing or uh, whatever it is that I I chose to sort of focus a specific part of my career on, it was always uh, a deep dive into that field, whatever that is. So Swiss army knife, my friend, my good friend, Andy Schoen, who I don't know if you've had on the show or not,
0: but, not yet.
1: um, genius. And, um, he just launched a new, uh, podcast, uh, platform called speaker. And he used to call me when he would introduce me to people. He would say like, you're the Swiss army knife. When I need something done, no matter what it is, I, I can count on you to sort of like open up the blades and open up the tweezers and open up the file and open up the screwdriver and, and get whatever it is done that needs to get done. So I, I like to see things, and I try not to be, um, I, I like to call it attention to detail as opposed to um, micromanaging. <laughs> so I like to see things from the beginning all the way through to the end. Um, so you have to, you know, I had to learn how to shoot, then I had to learn how to edit, and I had to learn how to produce and direct and be able to take it from the beginning all the way to the final product.
0: So. Anyone listening, including myself, who's listening to you, when I do a deep dive into something, it's immersive. The genre that I'm taking the deep dive into, there's a reason why it's called a deep dive. It's because the metaphor being, in my opinion, a body of water, probably the ocean, a vast, vast genre that you're going underwater and now you're immersed in that. You can't hear anything that's going on above the water. You're now down in an undersea world of that area of the business you're doing the deep dive in. And so all your other things that you had worked on or are working on, writing, creating, directing, executive producing, acting, creating, are above the surface of the water because you're taking a deep dive into, let's just say, your latest, I'll call it your latest project, who knows, you probably have 17 projects after it, but the Art of Sneakers book, the genre, the whole collaborative effort at bringing it all together, the gallery around the sneaker culture. Presumably, you've got a documentary in the works, if I know you, that you're not talking about he's nodding so when you take the deep dive how do you make it so those other areas of your life that you're extraordinary at don't suffer
1: I try to apply all of those other aspects to to whatever the deep dive is that I'm focused on in the moment so with with the art of sneakers you know Traditionally, what you find in the sneaker space was a lot of people talking about what shoes are dropping today. What's hot? What's the drop? And what we wanted to do is approach it from a, an artistic perspective so, and focus on the stories of the people creating the art, the artists. Their different mediums that they work with. Um, so when we went after the we started with 14 artists that we were going to commission for the book and the art project. And it turned into 19 in the end, plus um, Jeff Staple, who wrote the forward and is also an extremely talented artist and designer. But um, we wanted to tell stories. So through years of producing and writing and filming and shooting and, and doing home follows or documentaries about a band or filming on the road, or even interesting things like choreography, applying all of those things to the art of sneakers, you know, it, I don't necessarily let it clutter, uh, the vision, but try to add to the vision. And when I say sort of deep dive into a culture like sneaker culture, um, I'm a huge fan of research, visual research. Uh, uh, editorial research research and just getting out and talking to people i mean that's what we spent three years in building sort of the 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 production company and creative agency that developed the art of sneakers sneaker inc started as a you know when i left revolt um, when i was working with with puff at revolt and helping launch a channel uh, sean puffy combs sean combs um who is a longtime friend and collaborator i thought wow we were able to launch a channel from scratch you know we weren't taking over another network we were launching something from scratch today which you know many times along the way was a challenge and i had so many friends say to me stick with it this is probably the last time somebody's going to launch a channel from scratch when when i left revolt uh to pursue you know personal projects There was three things that sort of stood out to me, three things that I kept saying to myself, what do people sleep out for? They sleep out for iPhones, you know, they camp out, they line up and they camp out for iPhones, they camp out for Star Wars, and they camp out for sneakers. I couldn't mess with Star Wars and I couldn't mess with iPhones, but we could focus on sneakers. And so when we launched Revolt, I wanted to take everything that I had learned from a branding standpoint, from a network standpoint, from a programming standpoint and apply that to sneakers. Um, and it was really, I had been a, you know, an obsessed enthusiast of sneakers for, you know, the better part of my entire life, 40 years, I was probably eight years old when I, when I sort of first got into the sneakers.
0: What was the sneaker that you camped out for in your mind? At eight years old that you had to have
1: i'll tell you the story um and i still have them uh but i was you know eight year old eight years old got home from school digging around in the basement box of storage box of my dad's and i'm pulling out you know shoes uh he was he, he was a shoe salesman he worked for shine when he was a kid so he had all these leather loafers and shine you know uh, uh, Penny loafers and dress shoes, and at the bottom of the box, I came across this pair of uh, Chuck Taylor Converse size tens. And I was eight years old at the time, so I was you know size three or whatever. And I thought oh, someday I'm going to fit into these sneakers. And they, there was just something about those Chuck Taylors at the bottom of this box, white, clean. And I had seen photos of my father playing basketball in, in high school and college, and I and those were the sneakers that he and he had saved them. And I still have them today. And and one of the things that I did recently with one of the artists from the, I'm I'm gonna bring this full circle. So we worked with an artist recently who, uh, he goes by Feel Good Threads. His name is Suheel. And he does this incredible customization of sneakers. And he, for my dad, for his birthday this year, I had a pair of Chuck Taylors, white Chuck Taylors painted in uh, the Minnesota Lakers one pair is painted like the Minnesota Lakers and the other pair is painted like the Los Angeles Lakers to kind of bring that story full circle you know 40 years later uh that that's where the that's where the sneaker obsession started but then i was in you know i grew up in hip hop culture i was a choreographer i was a dancer in the 80s listening to you know uh sugar hill gang sugar hill uh records sugar hill gang and and uh cameo and everybody guy and all those bands at the time and you know hip-hop culture was all about
0: was seeing. cameo considered hip-hop
1: i cons- i i taught to cameo so when i was teaching hip-hop
0: you taught cameo I, yeah,
1: I, I, yeah alligator, alligator woman such a great album I, I i have all my vinyl and i have all my cassettes I still remember the first piece of vinyl that. When you threw play. out the
0: eight tracks, that's, that's awesome. I never had eight tracks. <laughs> I had,
1: uh, I I never went through an eight track phase. Yeah, I went straight from vinyl to cassettes and then discs.
0: Got it. We'll keep going. I don't want to throw it. Anyway, just about cameo, I got, I
1: got sidetracked on a deep dive uh, in in sneaker space. but that's how it started for me. And I really try to apply everything that I've learned along the way, in all of these various careers that I've had, to what I'm doing now, as as evolution.
0: Here's a weird side question. Why are Chuck Taylors the most inexpensive sneaker to buy to this day? You could get them for $30 new or $35 new and they're the original.
1: They're the original. I think it's because they're the same. It's canvas, waffle soles, simple design. You know, there's no... Crazy high technology involved in a pair of Chuck Taylor's. And I love going to the gym these days and seeing, like, you know, somebody there in like black sweatpants, a gray sweatshirt, and Chuck Taylor's working out as opposed to, you know, working out in, you know, some crazy. I, I don't know. I heard, this, I heard a story about a pair of Nikes that are out now that I don't know how much they cost. They must be like $250. they are running shoes and they're made to go 100 miles. And after 100 miles, you, they wear out. You have to just throw them out and get a new pair. So, I don't know. I like the Chuck Taylors. It's old school. That's why, we, that's why they're, they're, they're the, golden, the golden sneakers outside here at the Art of Sneakers. It's our homage to the Chuck Taylors.
0: Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, A -a one-of-a-kind, all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. I think I would be remiss if I didn't take our audience through it, take five or 10 minutes and really for them if they don't know, to understand what has happened and when it started happening. Because for me, I've been in Los Angeles now for about 20 years, 25 years. And I only remember what seems like somewhere in the middle of that time where I'd walk down Melrose and I'd see a line down the block outside a sneaker store. And I know that wasn't happening 25 years ago. so. I want you to sort of take our audience through the beginning of the sneaker culture, who was the trailblazer and how did it go from the early beginnings to this culture? Now that's, I don't even think anybody who knew the sneaker culture was an expert like you could know all the new designs that are coming out from different artists and things.
1: Well, I'll I'll start by saying I don't, necessarily consider myself an expert in um you
0: wrote a book called the art of sneakers
1: right which is about which is very specifically about a collective of artists who have made sneakers their muse right that's 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 a that's a that's a quote steal from jeff staple who i'm going to talk about because jeff staple in 2005 was instrumental in creating uh what is known as uh sort of the first sneaker riot Um, the first sneaker riot riot yeah so he um so so jeff staple created you know he designed a shoe uh collaborated with nike called the pigeon dunk uh, in 2005. was the
0: pigeon part of the jordan brand no
1: it's not uh it was a the the pigeon is a from the sb side so the skateboarding side of sneaker of of nike and um and and that, there's an entire culture dedicated to, you know, uh, alternative sports. You know, there's the Vans side of sneakers and in, in Vans. Which, it, it's which, not about having the most polished clean shoes like the kids have today um, that are worn once or twice on occasion, special occasions. You know, I think action sports is amazing and it's one of the places that we wanna tell stories moving forward in the evolution of sneaker Inc. and and our, and our media brand, which is skaters wear their shoes out. They, you know, they vans are, you know, and, and skaters and BMX bikers wear their shoes out to the point where they're taping them back together. And those shoes have amazing stories. In addition to what's happening today, which is all the collaborations with artists, whether it's, you know, Travis Scott or, or, um, You know, every hip hop, not every hip hop, but a lot of hip hop artists have these exclusive brand collaborations and brand endorsement deals. But I think, you know, 2005 was the start of definitely this sort of idea of limited edition sneakers and in uh, in limited quantities.
0: So 2005, it started and did it start with Jeff Staples, who, by the way, is a great speaker and a really knowledgeable incredible yeah. i saw him speak at your party uh, video and incredible mesmerizing but for our audience i just try to understand maybe you don't know but so he created the first sneaker riot with the pigeon shoe but, but i think
1: even before that before that back, were there it was athletes it was really sports and you look at what michael jordan did with you know the the jordan one and the evolution of jordan sneakers and what tinker hatfield did at nike in designing you know whether it was the the, the Jordan Three with the air cushioned sole, that was this. I think the early beginning days of this uh, fanatic sneaker audience uh, that developed into a culture. You know, if you look at I when I think about sneaker culture, it's global. It is what I called in the in the. Uh, and the panel that we did the other night, sort of the great equalizer, you know, because it doesn't matter if you're 14 or 15 and you save your money uh, to buy a pair of Jordans that are coming out, or if you buy a pair of Jordans and give them to a, as a gift to somebody like an older producer that you work with. I have a great story about a pair of sneakers that I gave to Mark Burnett um, <laughs> when we were working on a show together last year with Kevin Hart. Uh, we can go back to that story later, but you know, in my mind, you know, it's, it's hip-hop culture, you know, early Pumas, Fat Laces, um, Adidas Gazelles, they were lightweight, you could break dance in them, um, and they had very smooth soles, So you know, um, shell toes, classic Adidas shell toes, all-stars. Um, you know, those all were hip-hop culture. They were all, you know, great for, for dancing, for b-boys uh, back in the late 80s. Um, and then it became a fashion statement, you know, that, that developed in New York and became, uh, you know, really uh, an American culture, hip-hop culture being American culture. And, and, and hip-hop, uh, the, the entire fashion scene was driven by, you know, streetwear. And I think that's the, the birth of sneaker culture. And now, it, you know, it's funny. For years, you know, maybe five years ago, it was, it was still a subculture. Uh, and I think now it's that the whole idea of, you know, subculture becoming mainstream and um, staying authentic. And still, you know, if you look at the big brands, they control the releases. And that's how things become exclusive. And now there's... You know how many billion-dollar resale companies are out there, reselling sneakers, and kids are, you know, 15-year-old kids are making a million dollars reselling sneakers, because they've created apps that have bots that buy the sneakers before anyone else can, and then they resell them, and they make a ton of money doing that. Um, so, you know, the it's it's in my mind it's pretty mainstream. I mean, there's still definitely people who. You know if i talk to my parents about sneaker culture they don't necessarily they're like i don't know we wore sketchers you know i get my dad a nice pair of sneakers but um but i think it's pretty if you you know if you sort of look around we always we joke uh in the office like we all make sneaker contact or shoe contact before we make eye contact and that happens a lot now i think um i think once you i think if you you know traditionally wear dress shoes or wear you know just regular footlock a pair of sneakers from Foot Locker, whatever those are and you find yourself in a position to wear a pair of sneakers that are unique or limited the response you get is pretty incredible and that's kind of the story with mark burnett that that i love to tell which is you know we were working on um tko with kevin hart and Kevin's a big sneaker guy, you know, we, we, uh, we were always sort of, you know, talking, Kevin and I have passion, similar passions sneakers, one, watches, cars,
0: one of the best interviews I ever had on the show.
1: Yeah. And, um, and he's, you know, we always, we were always like, you know, talking about whatever car that was that day or whatever sneakers were wearing or whatever watch we're wearing. And, and so Mark was coming in and Mark was wearing these Alexander McQueen's that that he had worn for a long time and I'd seen them beautiful sneakers but they were like worn out and I was like you know I need to get Mark a gift thank you gift for hiring me on this project um, we've been longtime friends my wife is the executive producer of The Voice so we're you know really close with Mark so I got him a pair of limited edition uh, Sean Wortherspoon uh, sneakers they're kind of rainbow colored they're uh, air max design uh, they're, they're close to my heart as well because they came out in, uh, you know, around 1997, this style, which is uh, 97, 98, which is when I went, met my wife and I happened to have those sneakers on when I when I met Audrey. Um, so it was like this kind of full circle story. So I buy, I get Mark a pair of these Werther spoons and I wrap them up and he's walking into work and I see him by his car and I give him the gift and I'm like, hey, Mark, thanks. I just want to thank you for. And he's always kind of asking me like, do you have a sneaker company? Like, what are you doing? Like, what's your, what's the sneaker thing? Ivan, what's the sneaker thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so I got him this pair of sneakers and I, and I see him, he takes the box to his car. Uh, I, I go do a quick meeting. I come back and I see him and he's pulling off his, his uh, McQueen's and he's throwing them in the back of the, you know, his back of his Bentley and uh, and he's putting on these Werther spoons. And he's like, oh, I love them. Everybody loves a gift. You know, like, oh, they're so cool. I love them. And I'm like, cool. He's like, I got to go to a meeting. Uh, I want to know more about these sneakers. I want to know more, like, all about the guy who created these. And I don't need the story. But I've got to go to a script read with Kevin. Um, but I, afterwards, I want to I talk to you about them. I'm like, OK, cool. So he puts them on. Goes to the script meeting. I see him after the script meeting. He's like, I, we, didn't, we didn't talk about the script. All we talked about for an hour was the sneakers. He's like, what are they? What did you get me? And I'm like, oh, they're, you're going to like him. You know, like, they, they fit Mark, he's just his personality and everything too, like, just bright and great energy. So the next day he comes in, he's wearing the same pair and he's like, I, I don't know what you did. I got home and my kids are like, where the fuck did you get those? Well, how'd you get those? You know, and his kids are going nuts. He's like, you know, so anyway, so, so then, uh, you know, I, I see Mark on a panel, you know, at some convention, and he's wearing the sneaker, and he's got them up on the desk, and he wears them for like two weeks, and I'm like, you can't wear those, you can't wear the same sneakers for two weeks. So I had to get him like two more pairs of sneakers to like fill out his collection so that he could rotate, you know, so he wasn't wearing the same sneakers every day. But, um, but that's just the, the idea that they're the great equalizer. He went home, and his, you know, 20 year old kids are like, where'd you get those? Like, how'd you get this?
0: Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. What I understood was there's two kinds of the sneaker that you gave Mark Burnett. There's the ones that were never used. They were in a box somewhere in some warehouse and some, or there's ones that were used that people sell. So is there just one or the other that's valuable? Like if I were to get, let's say the ones you gave Mark Burnett, if they were for sale on eBay and they were used versus the ones that you found that were actually the original ones what would the difference in cost be?
1: Oh, it, 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 it's astronomical, the cost difference. Uh, you, you know, if... And by the way, those are the sneakers there on the wall. Uh, those are the Sean Werther that I Beautiful. got from Mark. Um, and Steph Morris drew those. Took her 100 hours to draw those.
0: Steph Morris was, <laughs> was also one of the at the artists. party and was also... Yeah, she uh, was on the panel. On the panel and yeah. one of the most incredible artists you'll ever find.
1: Yeah. So... So those, as you said, um, in a box, stored, uh, never worn, dead stock. That's the term that that they use for sneakers that are, you know, purchased, put on ice, stored, and dead stock. But those, that particular pair, the original design came out in ninety seven, a silver, all silver, reflective pattern. Um, in, I guess it was probably 2016 or 17, maybe 20, uh, or was it last year? I think it was actually last year, 2018. Nike did the collaboration with Sean Wortherspoon, who has a very um, successful resale store uh, on Melrose. Um, so they collaborated with Sean to create the new design, which is basically corduroy and sort of these beautiful rainbow colors of that same sneaker.
0: Got it. So this in 2019, the new design would 18, cost how yeah. much in 2018 would cost how much new, uh,
1: about 800 bucks 800. on the resale market. Yeah. I think on the retail side, if you were to get them,
0: if you're waiting in line, if you're waiting
1: in line and you get a raffle ticket yeah. or you're lucky enough to be online, uh, you know, on the sneakers app on Nike, Uh, In and you put your you know, you registered to get in line for those sneakers I think the retail price on those was probably 250 ish 250. Got it. That's my guess.
0: And so The ones you gave Mark Burnett were an original or were one of these
1: Uh, Those they were they were dead stock
0: dead stock.
1: Yes that I paid a premium for Um, So that I could get them on that day when I needed them for him now I did reach out to my plug to try to help me get those uh, uh, But they did not have them in his size So I had to go the alternative route in the resale market and buy them on a one of the resale platforms called goat
0: so presumably Chagall he's paints and he does a print of something and it's like one out of 250 two out of 250 and you buy them for an extreme price for that and then they resell but after the first 250 are gone there's no more prints of that particular one that you can get so your only shot of getting it is buying it from one of the 250 that have it yep Are there certain sneakers in the world that are extinct and no matter how much, even somebody like you or Jeff staple, no matter how much they search around the world, they're never going to find one of those shoes ever again. That's new. Uh,
1: a good example is actually the Jeff staple pigeon, the dunks, the original dunks, those, I think they were probably 140 bucks when they came out. If that, this is 2005. They did, they, ran that, they did that run of however many sneakers they produced, 500 pairs, 1,000 pairs, whatever that was. They're never making those again. And those shoes today, if you can find them dead stock, in a box, on ice, never used, start at 13,000. So you can get them, but you pay the premium for those now there's some used ones out there maybe you can get them on ebay but are they real are they legit you know with all of these um resale companies they have authentication so they have experts that work at StockX, that work at goat that work at stadium goods that authenticate these sneakers go through them make sure that they're real because obviously there's tons of counterfeiting in this space as well um i think they just these shoes that I'm wearing today, sort of my favorite go-to sneakers are the Jordan one, Travis Scott's. I've been wearing them for months. I've worn them out. Um, the
0: first year those came out was when this
1: year, they came out this year. So beginning of the year. Now these Jordan ones, those are from 91 Jordan ones came out. Uh, I'd have to, I'd have to get that information for you. Uh, off of one of our bios because we tell that story, but I think it was around '91. Um, so, but this design has been out since '91. But this collaboration that Travis Scott did with Nike, w- you know, reversing the swoosh, putting it in a different direction, using this soft, uh, sort of brown uh, leather material, all the little sort of interesting details, the cactus jack logos, and things like that. The reverse swoosh. Um, so the counterfeiting. Um, they just they just seized a huge uh, shipping container f- with $5 million worth of counterfeit sneakers in th- this exact sneaker. So you know, that authentication process is really important. It's an interesting space. I mean, the sneaker business is what, $60 billion? Probably more than that this year. That was 2016, it was 60 billion. The resale market alone last year was $3, million, uh, $3 billion in resale. So, you know, getting those sneakers, getting uh, in that first run and then buying them uh, at retail cost and then putting them back on the market with a triple quadruple markup, uh, it's a huge business. It's supposed to, I think it's gonna triple in the next five years, between six and $9 billion resale industry.
0: I wonder if there is gonna be a situation where they catch sneaker designers doing what they've caught musical artists doing, which is taking their tickets and then holding them back and giving them to resellers and then taking Taking a a bigger commission of that.
1: Taking a cut, who knows? All right, I have
0: so many things to talk to you about. (laughs) And I want to go way, way back with you. I want you to take me back to where you grew up what the socioeconomic dynamic was in your family and what was your first inspiration into getting into this business as just the visionary that you are in terms of so many different professions that you do there i don't think there's one profession within the entertainment business that you don't do i mean you write you create you executive produce you direct you've been an actor there's
1: one there's one that i have stayed away from because it has just never been but that's a part of my DNA which is singing, singing. I, don't, I cannot okay. sing yeah it's just one of those things that I cannot do but I cannot you work on them. shows
0: that involve singing I
1: did and I and I was in a musical called Newsies and I was on Roundhouse where I had to sing and there's one live episode where they couldn't fix my voice and it just
0: still to this day. But you (laughs) did get hired as a singer and actor. Uh, I did. Yeah, I did.
1: So uh, let me take it back. So, uh, you know, I grew up in a in a a suburb of Minneapolis. Uh, I was in, a, you know, my 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 family was I'm first generation uh, American. Uh, my family was all born in the Ukraine. My grandfather's on both sides were escaping the war at the time in the forties. Um, my, my father was, uh, born in East Germany during, during the war. My mother was, I'm sorry, my father was born in Austria. My mother was born in East Germany, uh, during the war when they were getting out, they grew up in you know, an army barracks escaping the war um they moved to straight to minneapolis where there was a large ukrainian community just outside of uh downtown minneapolis in a little neighborhood called northeast minneapolis so yeah so i grew up in a very european family you know i grew up on borscht pita Kobasa, uh kobosa, uh you know kibasa all like ukrainian traditional ukrainian foods i spoke ukrainian growing up english is my second language um and I went to ukrainian school on saturdays i was an altar boy uh all of those things that you grow up in an immigrant family you know uh and 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 i'm i'm blessed because of it you know speaking a second language growing up you know speaking ukrainian growing up is a gift that you know i you know, i just um i cherish to this day um it made learning other languages that much easier um and so so i so being from a very european family uh you know i played soccer growing up and it was it was i was a very serious soccer player i played uh at a very young age and um would literally juggle the ball around the house as as practice up and down the stairs into the basement um and i played soccer was my life when i was a kid and my dad saw a story about uh, a football team that had taken ballet classes to help their flexibility and agility skills uh, and and movement as a football team. And he saw that my sister was a dancer, my sister is four years younger than me, and she was in a dance class. And he saw that there was a all-male dance group starting in minneapolis uh, in, in in a little town called Maplewood outside of uh, a city, a little uh, suburb of of St. Paul. And, uh, so he signed me up for this all male dance class and I think I was eight, eight or nine at the time, or no, I, I'm sorry, I was, I was probably 10, uh, at the time. And I got into this class of, of boys that were all taking tap ballet and jazz as kids. And it started with 21, 21 uh, this, and this is how I got into the entertainment industry. So. It started with about 20 guys in class, and by the time we uh, Started competing as a group um, It had whittled down to about five guys And in 1986 we entered a competition uh, and were on junior star search and uh, Went and started competing With that group and we won junior star search in 1986 with Ed McMahon and that was sort of my very first dip into the entertainment industry now before that i had spent a lot of time in new york during the summer
0: so you won the hundred thousand but you had the. it was ten thousand it was junior star
1: search (laughs)
0: so So each one of you made about six dollars
1: yeah i think it was 650 bucks but at the time you know you're 16 like 650 bucks i'll take it um but Mm i had spent a lot of time traveling as a dancer and competing with this boys group called the we were called the wild boys what kind of dancing though it was a blend. It was uh, it was a blend. You know, this was you know, you're talking about 19, the early 80s, where hip hop was coming into play, So we were doing a blend of jazz, modern jazz, and hip hop. Um, so it was it was fresh.
0: I don't know even if a lot of people listening even remember Star Search, but they had all these different categories. There'd be comedians, there'd be actors, there'd be singers, there'd be all sorts of things. The dance groups, this is what was so strange to me when it was a group dance, you know, what happened is you'd win and a lot of times they shot five in one day or they'd shoot three in one day and it's a two and a half minute segment. I want to know how you were taught the choreography and memorized the choreography with so little turnaround. Well, you would, you would prep
1: multiple routines. Um, and we, because Junior Star Search was an annual special, it was a one-off. Oh. So okay. we got lucky where we just had to f- focus on that one routine for that episode. Got it. And we won that episode and we competed against, you know, uh another group from New York, a group from LA, and then a group from like St. Louis or something. Um but I had spent a lot of summers in New York and LA. Um I was on the dance convention circuit taking classes with various uh You know dance convention Established sort of conventions there was DEA which was Dance Educators of America There was Tremaine Dance Conventions, which is Joe Tremaine. Who's one of my mentors Um, So I had spent time in New York taking class at Broadway Dance Center and steps and I had spent time in LA uh, During the summer I would probably spend two weeks in New York competing and then two weeks in LA taking classes, so I thought about the Broadway path but I wasn't a singer. I couldn't sing. So from the, from the time we came out and did star search in 86, I was 16. I was like, that's it. I'm moving to LA. We stayed at the Hyatt riot on sunset. We're up at the pool. I'm 16. And it was like, you know, people throwing chairs off the roof, you know, and into, you know, supermodels diving into the pool and I'm moving to LA. That's it. You know? So I was, when I was 16, I was, I, I had my bags packed and I was ready to go um and i sort of i had already started working for some of the choreographers at the time in la doing projects during the summer with them and and because you know i was like you know one of those one of the one of the guys in the you know sort of in the dan- in the late 80s it's like one of the funky white boys you know like this kid this white kid from minneapolis who knew hip-hop um you know, you're one of the featured dancers when it came to doing these shows with sneaker companies like Reebok and Avia, doing these industrial shows. And, you know, they would want to feature the pump sneakers from Reebok. And I remember doing, uh, showcases and, and fashion shows featuring the Reebok pumps in the late eighties and doing hip hop routines for those shows. So it's weird how it all kind of comes back around. Um, but yeah, so I, I was ready to, I wanted to drop out of high school. My parents were like, you, you've lost your mind, we'll cut you off. And uh, so I finished, I finished high school in, in Minnesota. And, and three days after I graduated and got my diploma, I was already in LA. My car was packed. I got my diploma and I drove, my dad and I drove out. And I was here and I moved, I moved in 89 and started working. I got my first gig three days later, auditioned, started working as a dancer straight away. And that transitioned into choreography, obviously. Um, but, you know, you want me to just keep going on the, on the, on the path? Cause it's, I can kind of bomb through it in 45 minutes.
0: <laughs> no, but it's fascinating. So you're doing the choreography, you're in that world. That's your world. Now that's your dive.
1: Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, dance was the first deep dive when I moved here and I, you know, I, I auditioned, I got jobs, I did newsies. I did, I was... Uh, teaching on Joe Tremaine's dance conventions that was a steady gig dancers didn't have steady gigs at the time and you know but
0: I mean this is the time of your life where you're if you don't mind me saying working for the man and then there's a transition where you become the man
1: what was funny was I it, it all it, it, all of my a lot of my stories come full circle so the director of Roundhouse, which was the Nickelodeon show that I was on. We did 56 episodes of Roundhouse. The director was Bruce Gowers. And I always hung out with, I knew that dance was never the long game for me. It was never the end game. It was my ticket into the industry so that I could see what I really wanted to do. So while I was doing Roundhouse, I was studying cinematography at UCLA at night. <laughs> And learning because I was always a passionate photographer, from the time I was a kid, I would steal my dad 's camera and take pictures and so so photography was always on my mind. I had a clear vision of what I wanted to do, and I think through the dance and choreography that I did back in the day, I was able to think about camera movement and Bruce Gowers was a you know a brilliant is a brilliant director was a brilliant director who I would hang out with i would go to edit sessions with him afterwards. I would study what he was, his movement and choreography of the stage and the set and the cameras and the actors and the dancers and the, you know, staging of everything. And because I was a choreographer, I was given a shot on Roundhouse to choreograph as well. I was able to, you know, apply all of those things at the time. And that was really my transition and sort of figuring out what was my path to directing because I, I knew that I would end up directing at some point. You know, I wanted to be able to, you know, as the director, you're, you know, you're not just the, the DP, the cinematographer, who's the head of the crew, but even above that, you're working with the actors, you're working with the crew, you're working with the lighting, you're working with the staging, you're working with production design, you're working with the writers, and you're able to take all of that in a, and, and guide whatever it is, you know, whatever production you're in.
0: As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing jfk from the grassy knoll this is a guy who spent 50 years in prison just got out we have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews along with interviews with five of the greatest jfk assassination experts in the world once you watch these videos your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever It's incredible. Just go to iKillJFK.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? I killed JFK.com. Check it out. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode.
1: I'm always open to change. I'm, you know, I'm in a place right now in my career, I think, after publishing a book directing network primetime specials. You know, for a long time, all I wanted to do was direct primetime network shows. And then it became, I wanna direct a big show for Netflix and I got to do that last year. Um, Be open to change. The next chapter for me, I think, is taking it back to single camera, you know, feature documentary filmmaking. Um, So I think I'm open to that change. I would just say make sure that you're really open to change.
0: As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
1: You get all the money
0: Drop that fancy car all the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamer Cause they have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave